Want to see that? Am I on? Am I on? See that same kind of energy from you. My name's Dave Dorse. I'm the associate pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, um, I hope that you can stay afterwards for the fellowship lunch. Great time to get to know one another. You uh, should have a sermon outline in your bulletin. Our first, fourth sermon in the book of Hebrews. And I've figured out this week the job that I definitely don't want to ever have besides being a ball boy for the New England Patriots. I, I don't want to be whoever makes the final decision on snow days for any county, but especially Loudoun County. Um, poor guy or lady, whoever does that, they just get uh, mocked and second-guessed uh, every time school closes or doesn't, uh, at least judging from social media that I've seen. And... Um, if they decide to keep school open, then because the snow doesn't seem to be building too much, how dare they put our children at risk? And if they decide to close, then everyone mocks how wimpy America is today, right? My day, we went to school with two feet of snow. None of this light dusting and everybody stays inside all day. I know from personal experience how very frustrating it is to plan an event and sit and wait and have to decide whether you're going to cancel or not. Um, it's happened many times in many years of youth ministry, 15 years of youth ministry, but also almost every time we have a church picnic. <laughs> and I remember a few years back, many of you will remember this, we had a July 4th picnic scheduled at the Pharaohs, and we had even put together a band that was going to play for an hour. We had a great set of music for you. And, but then we saw on the radar that we might get some thunderstorms, but it was a beautiful day. So we decided, picnic's on, everybody came, well, about halfway through, storm hit, the hail hit, and everybody scrammed, everybody cleared out, except for the band that huddled under tarps with the instruments and equipment. And so after about 45 minutes of the hail, it finally let up. And so we peeked out and tried to figure out if we had enough of a crowd. Um, luckily, Western Loudoun people were still around, so we went ahead and, and played. Because we were not going to waste all that practice time. How we wish we could control the weather. Just like we wish, I think, that we could control everything else in our lives. And bring us to the topic of control, because we want control over our children, our spouses, our finances, our weight, our looks, our customers, how other people see us. We would love to be able to control all of those things. Um, I have all the same control issues you do, plus the pastor issue of not being able to control your spiritual growth like I would like to. But we talk about some people as control freaks as though everyone doesn't love to just have their way. 
And we spend so much time and energy building our lives the way that we would like them to be. We get that job that we've always wanted to do that fulfills us. We buy the house, the car, the movie theater room with surround sound, whatever we need. Uh, we carefully structure our social circles and the, our kids' activities, and there we have it. And we have, we have phrases that capture this idea. We are making a life for ourselves. We are captain of your own destiny. But then something drops into your life to shatter that illusion of control that you've worked so hard for. Perhaps an illness, a disease, a loved one physically assaulted, hurt, killed, the loss of a job, a spouse that's unfaithful, a child arrested, any number of things that we could list that happen in our families that we have no control over. For my family, it was being hit by a drunk driver when I was four years old. Um, my dad talks about how powerless he felt. Control is an illusion. Sorry, let me... I think I get emotional on that. I'm sorry if I'm the first person that's ever told you that control is an illusion. We feel like we have it. But there are things that can happen that will affect you that you have no say over. Even if you can control the people closest to you in your life, there's not much you can do in the face of natural disasters. Cancer and Alzheimer's are no respecters of persons. Market, global forces will do whatever they want. You may get something, everything set up how you want it, but it's a house of cards. It's easily brought down. Today's passage speaks to our powerlessness. The original readers of Hebrews probably wondered, as we so often do, why does our world seem so out of control if God is there? And the very short answer we can see is that he's delegated ruling the earth to a bunch of people who couldn't handle it. Even though we humans have everything in subjection to us, as we're going to see, it's hard to believe and to see because of how we've fouled it up with our sin. But there's a deeper answer to who is really in control and how we can recover our rule, our dominion of this earth. Let's take a look at our passage. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. 
but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord, give us ears to hear what you want us to hear. Open our hearts to receive the message from this passage and from you. Hebrews is not the easiest, most straightforward book, so help us to realize that it was written for our edification and for our understanding and that there are wonderful truths in here. Amen. Let's uh, review very quickly what we've learned about the book of Hebrews so far. Uh, we, you know, we're not sure who wrote it, either Paul or another early church leader. We're not exactly who sh- sure who it's written to, uh, but we do have a very good sense that the audience was probably Jewish Christians who were facing persecution. And because of that persecution and some poor teaching, perhaps an unwillingness to study and to grow in their faith, they were considering turning away from the Christian faith back to Judaism and the law. And so the writer structures the book as a way of showing how Jesus is greater than everything, anything they could ever go back to. Greater than the law, greater than the old covenant, the prophets, Moses, angels, all of those things. And this passage is essentially the conclusion of that first comparison that we've been looking at for three other weeks. And that's Jesus is greater than angels. And we've had a few explanations of what angels do in the first 18 verses. And so if you look back, if you remember, chapter 1, verse 6 says that angels, God's angels worship Jesus first and foremost. And then in 1.14, it kind of gives us a description of what angels do. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They serve God's people. And then we found out that angels declared the message of God's law in chapter 2, verse 2. But there may have still been some people, some of the readers, maybe here, who were still wondering, well, aren't angels in control of everything that happens here on earth? To which the author begins this section by saying, no. The earth is not in subjection to angelic beings. God hasn't given them that level of responsibility He's given it to other beings, human beings. And so our first point is to think about humanity's original mandate, control over this earth. Verses 5 through 8, let me read them again. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And so in case you haven't looked at the footnote yet, uh, that quotation is from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. 
And the rest of Psalm 8 fleshes out, if you want to turn there, you can, it's in your outline, really fleshes out and expands what our dominion looks like. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And so Psalms, Hebrews, they reflect the original creation mandates of Genesis. And so if you look, again, I've got them printed, uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 28, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then verse 28, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Clearly, all three of these passages from Genesis, from Psalms and from Hebrews are making the same point. God created the world. God created human beings. God gave human beings dominion over that world. And so, back in Hebrews, verse 8 essentially says, says, yes, I do mean everything. Nothing is outside of man's control. Every land animal, every bird, fish, every plant, every landmass, every coastline, man can do what he wants with it, to it, But I think the implication and the emphasis of the idea of subduing is that man is to protect and to care for the world while still utilizing it to the full potential for what glorifies God. So what do I mean by that? Take for one one example, trees. Men should plant trees, humans should plant trees, preserve forests, But if chopping down a tree is necessary to build an altar to the Lord or to create a book or some other necessary and good purpose, man has that right. And so without going into a full-blown theology of creation care, it's enough to just recognize that God entrusted the world in the hands of humans. The world would not be better off without us, as we sometimes hear but we can't abuse it. But we are to use it and care for it. And beyond being God's stewards of the earth, the psalmist marvels that even though we may feel incredibly insignificant, God takes notice of us. Even though you are only one out of seven billion people on this planet, and this planet is just a tiny part of a mid-sized galaxy in a massive universe. God still cares for each one of us. That is a marvel. He crowns us with glory and honor, making us the pinnacle of his creation labors. But you may say, have you taken a look around lately? It doesn't seem like everything is under our control, and and so the writer gets to that. Point two, the difficult reality is that the world is corrupt and there is futility. 
The second part of verse 8 says, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now there's not a lot of explanation. But remember Romans 8, verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Sin ruined everything. Nothing is the way it was created to be. Human beings are slaves to sin, and we do not rule the earth effectively. G.K. Chesterton said, Whatever else is or is not true, this one thing is certain, we are not what we were meant to be. Now you may object, well, hey, I don't see dogs or horses or some other animal ruling, running the planet. Humans are in charge, and you're right. But the point is that we do not exercise dominion in a godly way, in a way that Adam tended the Garden of Eden. Part of the punishment of the fall was that labor would be hard, and the earth would not respond how it, how it should when we work on it. And so there's this huge gap between when we were shut out of the Garden of Eden until Jesus comes back and establishes the new heavens and the new earth. And so in this passage, you just see this. Now, yes, we rule, but not really. Not yet. We'll get back to that. If you're having a hard time with this, and you know uh, you've read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, most sermons have to refer to C.S. Lewis at some point, um, or Tolkien. Um, but if, if you've read the books, you remember The Magician's Nephew was the first book chronologically. And it's about the creation of Narnia. And uh, Narnia is created by Aslan's beautiful song. And it's beautiful and excellent. But because of choices of humans, evil is present and eventually takes hold. If you remember the story, by the time of the second book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Narnia is under the reign of the White Witch. It's always winter and never Christmas, right? The land is cursed, and some of the trees are on her side. And the problem is there are no sons of Adam or daughters of Eve sitting on the thrones at Caraparavel, ruling Narnia. But everything starts to change when Aslan arrives and when the children arrive. And full transformation takes place after Aslan defeats death and then crowns the four Thebansy children as rulers of Narnia. It's a brilliant analogy. And, and just as human reign is restored through the efforts of a greater being in Narnia, so we have the solution to our problem provided by a greater being. And so point three is the solution. And Jesus achieved what we could not. And so all of verse nine explains, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, the author of Hebrews does what we tried to do every week when I was teaching Psalms with Frank Pugh and John Thompson, and they're still teaching it with Mark Rist. I've moved over to the apologetics class, but what, we've, what we try to do is first you look at the Psalms text and try to figure out what it's saying to the original audience and what it reveals about man's condition and God's character and promises, how, those, how we're in those situations as well. But you can't stop there with the Psalms, as you can't with really any scripture. Because you need to recognize that every psalm says something about Jesus, or at least needs to be read in the light of the new covenant and Christ's redemption. You know, even though the psalms were written a thousand years before Jesus was born, they all point ahead to him, and they have new meaning because of him. And that's what the author does here and throughout the book of Hebrews. He says the best way to understand Psalm 8 is that one particular human perfectly fulfilled that psalm. And then he goes on to explain exactly how Jesus fits it. He says he was made for a little while lower than the angels. Right? In other words, Jesus was human. Jesus took the human condition even while he continued on fully divine. He identified with us. He was crowned with glory and honor, not just because of his status as a human, but because he accomplished something important in submitting to death, a death that took the place for others. Jesus is the representative man who fulfills this psalm on our behalf. The dominion that Adam and Eve lost because of their rebellion is reinvested in Christ. The first Adam ruined the world. The second Adam, Christ, restores it. And the text tells us that restoration is only possible by undergoing the penalty of that sin, which is death. Nancy Guthrie comments that we recognize immediately that Psalm 8 is not true of us, but it is true of Jesus. And through Jesus, as we unite ourselves with him, it will be true of us. It is through our identification with Christ, our oneness with Christ, that we also fulfill the destiny originally designed for us and revealed to us in Psalm 8. So it was about us. Then it wasn't. Now it is. And there is an already, not yet, as I said, sense of the Christian life. Because the rest of the world can look and see how messed up creation is and easily deny that Christ has rule and dominion over the earth. But the eyes of our faith see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, reigning over history, which points to him and leads to his soon return. Everything is already ours in Christ, though not yet realized in our experience. Now, verse 9 has a couple troubling, tough parts. Um, and it would be easy, I call them landmines, 
that we could step on. In other words, there's three ways we could misunderstand this verse that, and we could read into the text something that I don't think it intends. And the first thing would be easy to think that Jesus was only worthy of glory and honor after he died. And the text says that he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So we want to think maybe he didn't deserve honor before that. And taken to its extreme, that might mean that Jesus wasn't really equal to God. And we've got to stay far from that thinking. The text is not saying that. Jesus has always been fully God. He didn't achieve God's status when he died on the cross. He's always been worthy of worship, glory, and praise. But his sacrificial death kicked off the new reign of his kingdom. It's a timing issue. Philippians 2 says something very similar. Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The second thing we could misunderstand, we could easily think maybe that everyone is saved because of Jesus' death. I mean, listen to the wording at the very end of verse 9. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Doesn't everyone mean everyone? And it seems to say that Christ died for the whole world. That his death is not just limited to people who believe in him, but that it is effective even for people who don't believe. But dip ahead a little into verse 10, where we see the phrase, in bringing many sons to glory. Remember, Scripture, interpret Scripture, you can't get stuck with one verse. You can't take that phrase and automatically assume that it means Jesus' death is effective for all people. Remember also Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. His death is available to all who would believe. And ultimately, it only applies to those who are his children by faith, those sons and daughters that he brings to glory. That's what it means by everyone. And the third way that we could possibly misunderstand is that Jesus didn't really die because he only tasted death. Tasting death seems to imply to our ears that Jesus just got a small sample, a, a superficial feel, that he didn't truly plunge into death. But I think the wording, tasting death, goes back to the idea of the cup of suffering. Jesus talked about in, at the end of Matthew, said he didn't want to drink from the cup of, that God had for him, but that he was willing to do it. Jesus drank from the cup of suffering that was his death. And so the writer here sort of references that. It says he tasted death, a bitter, awful experience, but one that he went through for us. And I think there's also the idea that Jesus was not given up to death forever. He truly died, but he rose. And so in that sense, it was just a taste, a short detour that he emerged from in the resurrection. 
Ultimately, you can do a lot of things to try to keep death from coming. Exercise and diets to stay healthier longer. Cures for diseases, vitamins, oils, skin care, new technology that will prolong our lives. But death is still an unalterable fact. And it will happen to all of us. We don't have a cure or a solution for it, but Jesus experienced death for us in our place so that we don't have to despair when we think about death. The title of the sermon is A Better Sight. Because verse 8 says, We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But verse 9 says, We see Him, Jesus. We lift our eyes. The solution to our failures, to our inability to control anything, is to look to Jesus, the solution to death. I love this passage. I don't think I saw it the first time I read through it, that it holds two huge pillars, themes of sovereignty and salvation. Jesus is sovereign over all. God's sovereignty, nothing escapes his power. And Jesus has accomplished salvation for everyone who will be saved. And to lose sight of either of those amazing truths of the Christian faith will leave us in doubt, despair, or fear. People who deny the sovereignty of God will never know the peace that passes understanding as life dishes out pain and trials. They'll wither under them if they have no assurance that someone is in control. And if you're unsure that Jesus provide salvation, then you will run around looking for salvation something else. Or you'll invent rationalizations that you're good enough and that you don't need to be saved from your sin. But the faithful believer will embrace both of these truths and rest in them. And while storms, troubles, trials, heartache, and pain will find him, and remind him that he has no control. He will cling to his foundation, to the author and perfecter of his faith, his loving Lord Jesus. We need to pray. Take a few moments to pray and I will close us. benediction the responsive blessing lift up your hearts
them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Therefore, with the angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we praise and magnify your glorious name, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Glory be to you, O Lord Most High. Let us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and go forth to love and serve others in his name. Thanks be to God. We will see you in the cafeteria. Looking forward to eating. Yeah.